Hello and welcome to Reclaiming My Theology, a podcast seeking to take our theology back from ideas and systems that oppress. I'm your host, Brandy Miller, and it's not a surprise we're still talking about white supremacy. We're going to be talking about it for just a little bit longer. And today I am joined by my friend Karen Gonzalez to talk about xenophobia and immigration. Now, it feels important to name that xenophobia isn't something that's just related to race, which we talk about in the episode. But I wanted to talk about this in the context of white supremacy because the U.S. has a specific xenophobia and racism that coexist together, particularly in our immigration policy. And as the census data has come out and we continue to have immigration be a highly politicized issue in our culture, I think it's just important for us to have conversations where we seek to have deeper understanding about what theology says or doesn't say about this. Speaking of politics, soon we're going to have a Patreon workshop coming up on how to engage with politics when it doesn't seem as dire and critically terrible like it has for the last chunk of time. So get ready for that. And thank you, patrons, for your continued support of Reclaiming My Theology. It makes all of the difference in the world and truly makes it possible to make this podcast. And with that, enjoy this conversation with Karen Gonzalez. Karen, I'm so glad to have you on. I was actually thinking the other day about how I met you, and I know that we did Slate Speak conversations together, but I mostly remember ending up in your apartment or house like years, and this must have been like seven years ago, some some long time ago getting dropped off at your house and you having to figure out what to do with me. So it's just <laughs> funny to be seeing your face across the screen, nodding your home. Yes, I was just thinking about that because I remember that my crazy evil cat jumped on you in the middle of the night and I felt so terrible about it. <laughs> yeah, that cat wasn't playing with me. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I'm in a stranger's house being attacked by her cat. I don't know what to do here. But all that yeah. said, it's good to see you in this context. So thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to be here. Well, Karen, for folks who don't know you, I would love for you, as I do every guest, to describe for people so they can get to know you some. What does it mean to be you? Sure. What it means to be me is that it means to be um, tired <laughs> and a little bit cynical. Um, I used to live in the former Soviet Union, and they used to say that a um, pessimist was really just a realistic optimist. Um <laughs> And often I think that's the way I, I uh, seem to approach the world. But um, I would say primarily, you know, I'm an immigrant person. Uh, that's a big part of my identity. I'm a Guatemalan American. So I live in that in-between of two cultures. And I always have had to navigate living in, in those two worlds. And I think I'm you know, I sort of became an accidental public theologian. I really just started speaking about justice issues that I cared deeply about and that I wanted to see change. And I wanted to see the church speaking prophetically about immigration, about race, about these things that really matter to the heart of God. And so I accidentally ended up in that place, but I'm grateful to be here, um, to be in this space. And finally, I would say, you know, I'm also an advocate um, for mm -hmm. immigration. And I do that primarily through writing and primarily to people in the church, um, whether they're mainline or evangelical or wherever they happen to find themselves. And that's a place that I'm grateful to be in. And I think I've grown and evolved in my advocacy work and in my view. 
um, I think for many years, I also kind of viewed immigrants as guests um, mm. and, and we have hosts and we have guests, you know, and I've evolved in my perspective on a lot of those issues. And so that's a little bit of who I am. I'm also in Baltimore. I like cats, even if they're evil. Baseball. <laughs> <laughs> we do stand an accidental public theologian with an evil yes. cat. <laughs> and I'm single. I should mention that as well. I'm single. I've been single my whole life. And uh, so that's me. Well, that's amazing. Thank you for, for sharing. And I'm going to ask way more questions about some of the things that you <laughs> shared later on, because I think there's just so much um, substance there. But I'm actually wondering, as you talk about how your ideas have shifted or how you've become a public theologian, specifically around issues of immigration, are there some touch points for you that have kind of brought you on that journey, some highlight moments that you can go like, yeah, these were actually significant moments or a significant moment that kind of brought you along on the journey? Sure. So I had a moment, I will, I will highlight um, some moments that were negative. Honestly, one of them was I used to live out in Southern California and I was in a dating relationship with somebody who was white. And one day we're in the car on our way to meet his family for the first time. It's a fairly serious relationship. And he says, I wonder if you could casually mention in conversation with my family that your family migrated legally to the U.S., and I was just shocked because all of a sudden I went from, you know, just kind of going to meet people to now feeling like, oh, I'm going to an unsafe place with people who may or may not think I have the right to be here, even though I've been here most of my life, you know, since mm -hmm. I was nine years old. So I think that was for me uh, kind of a, a big touch point in terms of identity and recognizing. And I said, wait, you didn't tell me that your family didn't like immigrants. Uh, and he and he said, well, you know, they're just against illegal immigration. I'm like, but my family wasn't documented. Um, and he's like, well, it's not really hostile or anything. It's just, you know, that normal perspective that California people have about Mexicans and immigrants. And I was like, wait, <laughs> is there a normal, there's like a California sentiment that I'm not aware of, you know? Um, so, I think that was for me, um, you know, when you're a part of the culture and you've been taught to assimilate, you start to believe that you are no different than all the people around you. And then there are these moments, pivotal moments like that one that wake you up to the fact, wait, I am seen as different mm -hmm. because I am different yes. <laughs> um, in this way. And so that was a, a moment for me of really kind of wrestling with identity, that relationship eventually came to an end to no one's surprise. Um, and so I think that was a real um, moment for me. And I think another one was I, when I started working at World Relief, which is where I currently work, it's an organization that serves, you know, uh, refugees and other immigrants. I, I just started reading a book about the history of immigration policy. Believe it or not, it's fascinating. It, it sounds dry, but it's actually really fascinating. And I learned how incredibly racist the policies were until 1965. And that was so shocking to me because I had always thought of, you know, sort of xenophobia as very different from uh, racism in my family. I'd been raised to believe, listen, 
we came here and we're going to work hard and we're going to do the right things. And we're just going to be accepted and, and loved because of that. And I started waking up to the reality that that was not the case, um, that people still saw us as other, that half my family is black immigrants, black Afro-Guatemalans. And they suffered like a layered oppression of being both black in this country and also being migrants. And so uh, that was a huge wake up call for me because it really refuted everything my family had raised me to believe about the way that you achieve success and acceptance and, and love, frankly, um, in a community. So those were big. And then, of course, finally, the election of Donald Trump was just a real huge, huge turning point for me and a real point of crisis in, in the church that I had always belonged to the evangelical church. And, and it was a point where I left the evangelical church. I'm still in the church, big C church. I am still, uh, but I think those were huge turning points for me, just seeing how um, the church didn't care to be educated on these issues. And I saw it as a real failure of discipleship that mm. the church would elect a man whose whole platform was xenophobia, anti-refugee, anti-Mexican, anti-Black. I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. I think it was one of those... Um, moments where you really, where you, where you really recognize, wow, I have been betrayed by people I thought I thought deeply mm-hmm. uh, cared about me. So, those were big turning points for me. Yeah, thanks. Uh, one of the things that feels like it comes up as a theme as I hear some of those stories, like something that weaves them together, is this kind of idea of a benevolent racist. Like that, there's these people who seem safe, who are like maybe generally kind, who say they're supportive, who love Jesus, but whose racism, whether in policy, practice, or theology, actually reflects a lack of welcome to all people, even if those folks would say like, all space is God's space. But when it starts to come to immigration and xenophobia, that actually starts to collapse really, really quickly. And I think we saw that really, again, most extremely and recently in the election of Donald Trump. And so I, I hear that. And I think that I was recently reading a book that's forthcoming. I wouldn't recommend anybody read it. <laughs> I won't even say what it's called. And it there was a, a black man who was espousing this idea that like we should bring back like the Archie Bunker type, like the guy who's like a good family man, but who like sometimes says some racist things. And I was like, oh, that love for what some would call nuance is actually just this enabling of what you're saying is like a failure of discipleship. It is to say that you can be a partial disciple in this one area of your life, but when it comes to human rights or caring for people that aren't like you, that that is no longer a requirement of you because of the benevolency of your normal life. And so I hear that thread playing out even as you share some stories. So today we're going to, in the spirit of all of what you've just said, talk about xenophobia, especially as it relates to white supremacy. Now, I want to name that xenophobia, firstly, is not a specifically white thing, but that white supremacy has a has painted the canvas of xenophobia in particularly vibrant colors. And I guess what I mean by that is just that the way that white supremacy and xenophobia intersect is a lot more globally impactful a lot more socially violent and a lot more chaotic than a lot of xenophobia in other communities. So I don't want to be ignorant as to say xenophobia doesn't exist in other spaces. 
And I also want to recognize that this, as we talk about white supremacy, xenophobia, and immigration, is not something that we can cover fully in like an hour of time together. That it's a massive topic. It intersects history, our present politics, people's lives and embodied experiences and theology, and really like what it means for us to be human together. So I'd love for you as kind of an, an expert, a public theologian on these matters, to give us just a working definition of xenophobia and how you see that intersecting with white supremacy, just so we can be on the same page. Sure. So, you know, in the in the New Testament, you have this word philozenia, which means a love uh, for uh, strangers. People often, that's the word that we translate as hospitality. It's a love and a welcome of strangers and foreigners. And xenophobia would be the opposite of that. It mm. would be a fear, it would be a hatred um, of foreigners and strangers. In the Bible, you can see xenophobia. Uh, you see it, for example, when uh, the Egyptians uh, start to hate, when, they, when that pendulum swings and they start to uh, hate the Hebrews that live among them. And their words are even laced with disgust, you know, like an actual physical revulsion of these people. Um, and so, you know, they were from similar people groups. They looked the same. However, one was from one, yeah, one people group, right? One clan and one was from another. And so uh, the fear of the other and the enslavement eventually of the other began. So, yes, it's different from racism. And in this country, um, they've often gone together um, because really non-white immigrants have uh, suffered. So there's been periods, for example, if you've ever read a book called How the Irish Became White, there were periods where, uh, for example, Irish immigrants or Italian immigrants um, were um, seen poorly and were treated poorly. But eventually, because those people are white, they were able to just kind of blend in to the rest of white America. And now people look fondly back <laughs> on their Irish ancestors, right? Or Italian ancestors and sort of that whole history has been lost. Um, but that's not the case, for example, for Chinese immigrants for brown immigrants from Latin America, for black immigrants from the Caribbean and Africa and other places. So that's really the distinction. There are places where xenophobia and racism can intersect, um, but they can also, you know, xenophobia can be expressed quite apart from, from racism. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think we, I, I mean, I guess for me, when I think about xenophobia, I'm like, okay, xenophobia in some ways as like a concept makes sense. Like that we would be afraid of things that are not like us or that we would dislike things that are not like the people groups or ideas that we've been conditioned to normalize. Mm -hmm. I think for me where xenophobia becomes, well, I think it's dangerous all around, but I think where it becomes particularly dangerous in the US is when it becomes institutionalized. And so as you talked a little bit about policy and about kind of the changing of policy over time. Can you give us a little bit of background on that? Because what we'll do, I think what we can do here is probably talk about some of the history and then how Christians have found themselves with a text that has this love for the stranger as a core concept, both in the Hebrew scriptures and in the New Testament in the way of Jesus, and have somehow clung to in this failure of discipleship that you described, 
the politics of the religious right that really are xenophobic at their core. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I think it's good for us to touch on a little bit of history. And this was history that, you know, frankly, I did not know until, you know, maybe 10 years ago. But the first immigration law that is on the books in the history of this country is from 1882. And it's the Chinese Exclusion Act. And it did exactly what it sounds like. There was a culmination of growing anti-Chinese sentiment. Um, and it was primarily in the West. So the Chinese had come to the United States to help build the railroad. Initially, they were welcomed. Um, and, and, and this is a story you'll hear over and over again. People want laborers, but what they receive are human beings. Um, and so Chinese laborers came here um, and then the railroad was built. And so, well, now we don't really need these people. And it seems like they're going to stick around. And so this law was instituted and it was said that um, part of the law, as it's written, said that they lacked Chinese people lacked sufficient brain capacity and were unable to assimilate. And so that's 1882. So, you know, sometimes I have people um, who are descendants of Europeans tell me, you know, oh, my family came here legally in 17, whatever, you know, uh, or 18, whatever. And, but they came here legally. And the thing is, there was no immigration law in the books until 1882. So what their families didn't come, their families didn't come legally or illegally prior to that. Mm -hmm. They just benefited from a country with an open door. So that was the first law. And it had a lot of repercussions. It was enforced primarily in the West because that's primarily where Chinese people were. And in fact, if you go to northern Mexico, so along the borderlands of U.S.-Mexico uh, in California, there is a community of Mexicans of Chinese descent who mm -hmm. rather than be deported back to China, they just moved south outside of US territory in order to be able to stay. Um, and so it was definitely enforced and it was definitely um, an extremely racist law. And then we have um, in 1911, this is when we had a lot of, and by the way, the Chinese Exclusion Act was not repealed until 1943. Yeah. So <laughs> it was on the books for a long, long time. Long time. But in 1911, you had another law that came in. And this happened because there were a lot of people coming in from Southern and Eastern Europe. So this report, it was called the Congressional Commission Report, was supposed to address specifically the Italians. It was believed that Italians had a high rate of illiteracy due to inherent racial tendencies. And because of that, there needed to be um, a report. So many immigration advocates will tell you that there is no link between higher crime, uh, rates of crime and immigration. We know this for a fact because the research started in 1911. And it's research that has been done over and over and over again for, for more than 100 years because people keep saying there's a link there and it simply does not exist. And this report was the first time that research was done. And then 1924, uh, we have the next law and this is the Immigration Act. And this is now the first federal policy. Um, and this 
law coincided with a junk science movement called eugenics. Yeah, it was extremely, extremely damaging and harmful to non-white people in this country. But there was this Immigration Restriction League, and they said that the new wave of immigrants who were mostly not Western nor Protestant, they were um, Jewish, Eastern European, Southern European, and it was said these people were biologically inferior, that they were less capable of assimilation. Um, so, and you know, from 1881 to 1920, 23 million immigrants enter the US. So that's 15% of the US population. But only those from Northern Europe, England, France, and Germany could migrate freely. If you were Italian, Jewish, Polish, Eastern European, there were very, very strict quotas and were limited to only 2% of the population. Um, and so it was this, this law, uh, by the way, which is, you know, little known history around this. I read a whole very disturbing book <laughs> around uh, this law and this movement of eugenics around this time and the way that it influenced immigration policy. It's in fact what influenced Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were things that even the Nazis in Germany were like, wow, America's gone too far. We can't go that far. That's too much even for us. So for anyone out there who thinks that the Nazis are the epitome of evil, just know we exported uh, evil out to them, uh, evil ideas, and that were extremely harmful to a lot of people. uh, And they got these ideas from us, not the other way around. Yes. And so this 1924 law is what remained on the books um, until 1965. And that's when the civil rights movement, civil rights movement um, did so much good in this country. I think, you know, justice is good for all of us, no matter where it's happening. And it had this rippling effect across American society. And it highlighted the fact that immigrants of color were also treated poorly. Uh, And so it influenced this legislation to also change. It is not an accident. And I think it's a cause for solidarity, right? Between communities that are oppressed because we see the good results that can come from things like this. But that's just a little bit of the history. There's a lot more stuff in there, but those are the three basic um, laws that I wanted to share with you. Well, I think that that history is super important, especially as we look at the census data that's going to roll out over the next year that is in line with and historically in line with a lot of what you're talking about. Like even as I think about the census results coming out, and revealing that the population of the U.S. has slowed in growth and that immigration numbers are not above that 14 or 15 percent that they were even in the 20s, that there's this reality that we can see that the rhetoric, the anti-immigrant rhetoric is so salacious and opportunistically political that it's just, it's kind of inferior, it's kind of infuriating, it's kind of infuriating to see mm-hmm. the ways that that kind of data is being, even as that data comes out, we can see that the rhetoric and the reality of what's happening at all of our borders, our borders, indigenous people's borders that we all settled on, settled within, that that's all so politicized. And so I would love to talk a little bit about theology um, and mm-hmm. Christians, because if there were to be a group of people 
that should be able to, within our core doctrines, the character of the God that we serve, the story that Christians love to claim, not live within that reality that you're describing of the continued marginalization of immigrants of color in the U.S. specifically, because that's my context. What is it about Christians that make us so unable in our theology and practices to counter the narrative that you're describing historically and actually latch onto the story that God has that you gave just a little allusion to earlier on? Yeah. You know, it's not popular (laughs) to believe or accept this in a lot of circles, but many Christians in this country, I think are Americans first and Christians second. Uh, I'm not saying that they're conscious of that or acknowledge it, but the number of flags that I've seen in sanctuaries uh, lead me to believe that that's true. And I mean, American flags, not the Christian flag. Um, And I believe that's a lot of it. There's a sense of, loyalty to country, to state, rather than the commands of God, love of God and love of neighbor, which is what we see in the scriptures. Um, And I think that's at the root of a lot of this, because what I hear from people when I speak about immigration in churches, colleges, wherever I go, uh, is scarcity mindset, which is fed by politicians. As you said, it's very opportunistic. Uh, politicians love to have a scapegoat for any kind of economic problems. And for somebody like Donald Trump, he used immigrants over and over again as scapegoats. Um, And I think also you have this like sense of um, people are really tied to borders um, without acknowledging that a border is not a Christian construct. It is a human social construct. Um, And in fact, The movement of people is natural, has always happened, always. People have always moved for the same reasons people are on the move today, access to resources or fleeing danger, Mm -hmm. right? So those are the two reasons, primary reasons that people migrate. Um, And in fact, that has always happened. It has always been natural. If you look even at the US, what happened after the wildfires in the West, people left. They were climate refugees, quite literally. What happened after Katrina? People moved, right? For good reasons, don't get me wrong. I totally agree with their reasons for moving. Uh, again, climate refugees, right? And and in many cases also fail failures of the state to protect them and care for them mm-hmm. adequately. And so migration is natural, but Christians, uh, because they're more loyal to the state, they have they see borders as these important constructs that protect us somehow. Um, But Christians are, are not called to trust um, in borders. Borders are not natural. In fact, the Bible says that the whole earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So if that's true, that means that we're only stewards of the earth. And that means that the way indigenous people view the earth is actually biblical and the way that we view it as belonging to us actually harms us and it harms our neighbors. Um, And so I think a lot of it is rooted in nationalism as a, you know, summary answer um, and a failure to really love our neighbors as ourselves. And I hear this all the time, Brandy, 
you know, when Biden has detention camps for minors, I heard a lot of immigration advocates, primarily white people, saying things like, Biden's camps are not so bad. Uh, for one thing, you know, they're this or they're that. And my response was, would you put your children there or children that you love there? Would you put them there? Because if you would not, if they're not good enough for your children or for children in your life that you love, then they're not good enough for anyone's children. Mm. Um, and so, but we still have this, and I, and I don't think people understand that when they say something like that, what they're saying is my children or American children have the right to better things than brown children. Yes. Um, and that's exactly what they're, what they're saying. So that's where I see really the, the issues in the church from the number of questions that I get. People use Paul, uh, Paul's teachings in Romans 13 all the time to uphold, um, to really give themselves an out of caring mm -hmm. for their immigrant neighbor. So they'll say, well, Paul says, let every person be subject to governing authorities, right? And that all these authorities have been placed there by God. I said, that's true. Paul also spent most of the New Testament in prison and he was ultimately executed by the Roman Empire. So how do you reconcile the realities of Paul's life with this few verses that are in Romans 13? And so, yeah. but you know, this is some, this is not a conversation people are interested in having. <laughs> so yeah, I think that that's a lot of, of the issue. Um, yeah, I'll stop there. And like, <laughs> Well, I mean, what you're describing is what happens when faith is downstream of nationalism instead of national identity being formed downstream of faith. And the overwhelming result of that is that we have to employ contradictions that we won't engage with as a people in order to uphold that nationalism that is upstream of religion. And I hear that really often in my conversations about immigration too, because it's like, well, if people would just come legally and I'm like, have you been in the conditions that people are fleeing from? Have you considered what it's like to experience what people are experiencing? And it's like, well, my family came legally. And like you said, there wasn't even a category for such a thing. And what becomes confusing in a lot of ways. So for people listening, right? Like we'll hear someone say like with Romans 13, like, yeah, people need to migrate legally, but then they'll out of the other side of their mouth praise Bonhoeffer for his anti for his anti-Nazi work that is inherently anti-governmental in a lot of different ways. And so I think that those kind of what um, some public uh, scholars that I would follow would call conservative contradictions end up playing out really significantly and then require us to theologize in hindsight why we aren't following Jesus. And we theologize toward our nationalism rather than understanding our nationalism through our theology. And one of the ways that I see that happening with borders specifically is that in a lot of Christian doctrine and Christian theology, we can't imagine fluidity. Um, I think this is why Christians have such a hard time with LGBTQ anything, is because we actually are not taught to understand things as being fluid, that borders themselves are fluid, that people are fluid, that days are not just morning and evening, they're midday, that there's not just water, that there's not just like oceans and land, there's marshes, that there's fluidity in all things. And I think because 
we don't have a theological value for fluidity. We have a theological value for certainty and rigidity. There are lots of ways that immigration actually doesn't make sense to a lot of Christians because we don't have even conscious frameworks for how to engage with that. I also see a lot of this rhetoric. Um, it's, again, kind of exhausting. It's the kind of rhetoric I grew up in where people are like highly committed to Second Amendment rights, which is that we actually need to keep immigrants out as Christians because we need to protect our families from immigrants. That like, if those brown people come in, we're going to need to protect our families. And so I need to have more guns and fewer brown people without even recognizing that like a lot of the economic issues that we have actually come from population decrease. So one of the major issues and why I brought up the census earlier is because there are a lot of scholars who are deeply concerned about the slowness of our population growth because it impacts our economy so deeply. And so much of our anti-immigrant rhetoric makes it so that our economy in the U.S. actually cannot grow in a way that impoverishes all people. So even as you're talking about how immigration helps us all, I think that Christians don't often look at the bigger picture and truncate issues into their individual communities or individual fears and let their fears lead them to disengage with people who aren't like them. And so I think that there's a lot of pieces of theology that get warped and twisted. And I think that what becomes maybe a little exhausting to me is that when you have conservative critics, when you have conservative contradictions as a primary theological idea, what you end up is with is like flat progressive rebuttals, where it's just like, well, Jesus was a refugee, and it's like, okay, well, if someone's like afraid of immigrants and they are indoctrinated by Fox News, then just like saying a short quippy thing about Jesus isn't actually helpful. So I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of, yeah, what does Scripture teach us about? how we are to engage with immigrants, how we are to think about immigration, how are we to, how are we to think about strangers? Like what is, I'm gonna use a real Christian phrase, I don't use that often, what is God's heart for around all of these things? Yeah, so what we see, in, uh, and I wanna highlight that it's particularly in the Hebrew scriptures, is that God has a special concern for the foreigner and the immigrant. So the Hebrew word that's closest to immigrant, this word ger, appears, 92 times in the Old Testament. That is a lot of times. And most often it comes up this way, like in Exodus and Leviticus, where it says the same law applies to the native born and to the immigrant living among you. And I use immigrant because I like the common English Bible because rather than using stranger, which has different connotations for us, uses actually the word immigrant. So God's law to God's people was that the native born and the immigrant were to be treated equally with the same rights and the same responsibilities. So nowhere in the Bible do you see a better picture of this than in the book of Ruth. Mm. And so I say this knowing that probably most people who have read this book or been taught it and have been taught it as a story about Boaz uh, <laughs> or, <laughs> or a story yeah. about or a story about loyalty and love. And I, I want to say, you know, it is also a story about loyalty and love. Uh, that's the thing about the scriptures. If you are a follower of Jesus, then you believe the Bible is this sort of active living document, right? That speaks on a variety of things. But what you see in the book of Ruth is this woman, Ruth, leaves her country, Moab, with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And she migrates to... Uh, Bethlehem. And so what you learn, if you were, you know, the original hearer of this story, you would know the Ammonites, Moabites, 
were people that were despised by the Israelites and the people of Judah. Uh, in fact, in, in, in Deuteronomy, it says that even the 10th generation of these people could not belong to the Lord's assembly. So even though it says that in Deuteronomy, there's something else in Deuteronomy. <laughs> it says uh, God provides special protections for foreigners. Mm -hmm. And this is one of them. It says in Deuteronomy 24, uh, whenever you're reaping the harvest of your field and you leave some grain in the field, don't go back and get it. Let it go to the immigrants, the orphans, and the widows. The same when, with the olives of your olive trees, the same with the grapes of your vineyard. Let it go. To, let the leftovers go to the immigrants, the orphans, and the widows so that the Lord your God blesses you in all that you do. And this is in Deuteronomy 24, 19 to 21. And what you see in the book of Ruth, unlike so many places in the Bible where God's people disobey and go crazy, you see people actually obeying this command. Mm -hmm. So Ruth and her mother-in-law arrive in Bethlehem, and Ruth is welcomed into the field of Boaz. And there she gleans the leftovers from the harvest, and she takes them back, and she takes care of her mother-in-law by having these cleanings. And these were protections that were provided by God um, for everyone on the margins, not just immigrants, right? Anyone who was poor, who was an orphan, who was a widow, anyone on the margins of society. And um, it's really a, a, a beautiful picture because what it shows us is that Boaz understood as a follower of, of Yahweh, right, of God, that even a hated immigrant from a community, you know, that was despised was entitled to a decent job with a decent living. Mm -hmm. And the work that Ruth performs is not undignified. It's not demeaning. It's hard work, but it was exactly the kind of work that everyone else did in the ancient world. You know, people give Boaz a lot of credit, like, oh, he was this amazing man. It's true. He acts with generosity, but actually he was doing what the law said. Yeah. You know, <laughs> exactly. it's a very basic thing. <laughs> yeah. It's like when you congratulate someone, you know, for not being a racist, Well, you're not supposed to be a racist. Like, it's not like, that impressive. Like he's not some right. shining star because he's literally just following the law. Yes. He's following the law. Um, and it was God's law that guaranteed Ruth uh, safety, security and a place uh, gleaning the crops. Um and Boaz had an obligation not to order his workers to harvest everything for his own economic gain because compassion for the poor and for those who are on the margins of society was more important than efficiency and profit. And he actually, you know, follows through with this. And you see something really beautiful in this story um, because Ruth is welcome to the table uh, Boaz is, uh, even though she's considered unclean, right, uh, contaminated because she's foreign, she drinks from the same containers the workers do. She's invited to the table. Boaz says, listen, do not assault her and do not um, scold her or offend her, right? He actually says these things. And what that tells me is that was common yes. <laughs> with someone who was, uh, who was not from the community. Um, and what you see is that Ruth then becomes welcomed by the whole community because Boaz is a person of power, right? But she's welcomed by this whole community and she actually um, becomes family eventually. You know, she marries into this community um, and 
we see her, you know, in the Gospel of Matthew, that she's in the lineage of Jesus as one of his great, great, great grandmothers, right? Um, but it's the place in the scriptures where you see all these commands about the foreigner carried out. In other places, you see terrible things happening to people who are foreign. Think people like Abraham and Sarah in Egypt. Think about what happened to them. Abraham was so fearful for his life that he trafficked his own wife mm-hmm. uh, for his well-being. You see Joseph uh, being sold as a slave, being accused falsely. And what happens when he's accused falsely? That Hebrew that you brought mm-hmm. into the household tried to assault me. You know, you see the vulnerability of people who are foreign um, in different contexts in the scriptures. And there's a lot of movement of people in the scriptures, a lot. You just have to have eyes to see it. Uh, mm-hmm. And often, because we're taught the Bible from the perspective of the dominant culture, you know, I was taught this story as a young Christian. I was never taught that it was a story of migration. I was taught that it was a story, you know, about love and loyalty and this and this Jesus figure in the Old Testament, you know, leave it to Christians to always be looking for Jesus under every rock of the Old Testament. <laughs> but um, it is a, and you know, the, you know where I found where I, when I started researching that story, it was actually Jewish scholars. Jewish scholars were the ones who pointed out all the ways that this story was about uh, migration and so, and, and, that, and that it was this beautiful example of the economy of God. Yes. Um, they could have treated her suspiciously. You know, they could have rejected her. They could have done any number of things that they do in many other places. Mm-hmm. Um, but they don't. They actually follow um, God's command in this. And, and the whole community flourishes. Everyone yes. in that story becomes their best self. Yes. And so, um, so to me, that's one of the prime examples. But there are so many others. There are so many foreigners in this in the Bible that we're not used to thinking as foreigners, thinking of Joseph in Egypt as a foreigner, thinking of Abraham and Sarah in Egypt, thinking of Hagar back in Canaan with Abraham and Sarah. And she suffered mistreatment yes. after they forgot what it was like to be foreign and to be mistreated. Um we see Jesus encounter with foreign people, the Samaritan woman at the well, with the Syrophoenician woman mm-hmm. in the Gospel of Mark. There are so many places Rahab was a, she wasn't just a foreign woman. She was a foreign woman who was a sex worker. Yeah. <laughs> and we see the interaction of, we see how little that matters, you know. Yes. For people who perpetuate this good immigrant myth, we want the good immigrants. Um, that's not God's heart, clearly, because yes. he welcomed a woman that you would think would be on the, on the no list, right. On the do not admit list. And so there is a lot of that in the Bible, but again, I encourage you to read the Bible through those eyes, through immigrant eyes and see how much movement of people there is in the scriptures. Seriously. When I think that, that also, I think there's a lot of things that you're pointing out that feel very um, conceptual to me in ways that are really, really helpful. One is even as I think about someone like Rahab, like you just talked about, Christians love the myth of like a exemplary immigrant or something, like to shape an immigrant story in a way that is socially or politically advantageous. It's the way I saw Donald Trump using like a few immigrant stories to like pulling a few immigrants on and being like, we love 
45 and it was like okay because you want to have a certain narrative you want to spin the narrative of what it means to be an immigrant so we can look at hebrews and see that rahab is given this like shout out as being a woman of faith but then when we read the story of rahab in like in the hebrew scriptures we'll be like okay well it's a kind of a bummer that she's a sex worker but like god used all things for good like we, we take her narrative and who she is and demonize her and then export that kind of narrative onto sex workers in Atlanta, where we'll hear things like, well, maybe they shouldn't have been sex workers and maybe they wouldn't have been killed, right? We hear these kinds of moralizing narratives that happen in immigrant narratives when Christians try to hold up some notion of like the, some like archetype of like an acceptable Christian immigrant, which I just feel like what you're describing is that the scriptures actually don't care about any of that. That there is this assumption in the stories that you're sharing that immigrants are going to be marginalized in a community if we don't take special precautions, that that would not be the case. That Boaz isn't like some fancy man because he does what the scriptures say. The scriptures assume and thus proactively say in the law, like this is what's gonna happen to y'all and this is how you're gonna wanna treat people, but here's how God sees and treats people. And that that makes a big difference and that God offers proactive protection in a way that I do not see a lot of parallels in the US political system. I also think that there is this way that this myth of equality or like this um, Christian white value for equality becomes really troublesome because it makes it so that when we say, hey, immigrants are marginalized, there are marginalizing forces that exist so we need to actually turn our attention to away from the, the words you use were uh, efficiency and profit toward compassion for people, that there's actually not a lot of ways to do that when equality is the baseline where it's like, we don't give special protections to people because people should just be able to figure it out in a system that wasn't built for them. And so I think that idea of compassion over efficiency and profit is actually really, really hard for most Americans, for most white folks and for the intersection that that has with Christianity. And so I'm wondering what other way, because you're describing this like beautiful and consistent theological idea. And I think the one other thing I'll say maybe is that I love that you turn to the Hebrew scriptures for that, because I think that the Jewish people are reliable narrators of a migration story that mm -hmm. we can turn to Jewish people and say like, your story is a story of forced and unforced migration and that your laws, the laws given to you to steward by God actually have much more life to give than whatever Christian theology has been manufactured in the US and really globally in ways that harm. And so I, I'm just, I'm recognizing that Jewish people have this story and this narrative that is really helpful for seeing migration and immigration differently and for seeing xenophobia differently for unlearning xenophobia or for maybe uh the, maybe the way to say it would be to jewish people have a story that creates safeguards against xenophobia or counterbalances to what might naturally happen as we fear others or hate others are there other stories from other communities or other theologies that have helped you to think about xenophobia and immigration in a way that counters the white dominant narrative yeah. So it was really interesting. I was um, actually reading this summer, this last summer I had read, uh, I don't know if you've heard of this book, uh, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, who's a, who's a Native American botanist. 
Um, but as, as a result of that book, I started reading more indigenous theology because a lot of what comes out in her book, even though it's about plants and indigenous wisdom, is an indigenous worldview, a view of the earth in a different way. And I read in particular around the Mayas. I'm Central American, you know, and the Mayas were predominantly in Southern Mexico and Central America. And that in the West, we tend to view humankind as the epitome of creation. Uh, and this came out of the enlightenment, right? And the Renaissance, all these places where the human body and human beings and our thoughts. But in indigenous um, Mayan traditions and probably in others as well, uh, the epitome cre of creation is both the creation itself, the natural world and the human beings because the human beings care for the earth and the earth cares for the human beings. Mm. And so there's a reciprocal relationship that is between the two. And it was for this reason that when Spanish conquistadores arrived in Mexico and Central America and the Caribbean, indigenous people were willing to share <laughs> land with them uh, because it was never seen as theirs. It mm -hmm. was like the land was given to us and so we share it with you. It's been shared with us, right? But of course, they didn't know that Europeans were coming with the idea and like, no, I'm claiming this land for me now and it belongs to me. Um, and so it created, so these two worldviews, you know, sort of clashed, right, at that moment. And so, um, and I think a lot of what, when you talk about immigration, you're ultimately talking about belonging. Who rightfully belongs on this land, right? And a lot of that has to do with the way that you view the land, yes. right? And I'm sure you've been in spaces now where people do acknowledgements um, of indigenous communities that used to possess the land that we're on, right? Well, what does that mean exactly to acknowledge that this land used to belong to the Piscataway tribe, that it was their land? What does that mean? We're just acknowledging it to make ourselves feel better or is there something in their belief system, is there truth? Is there, um, should we be learning at their feet? Um, because they were such wise stewards of land. Um, and, and by the way, I'm not saying that indigenous people are perfect or that immigrants are perfect. The fact is we're all people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. And, and really trying to uphold an image of the, you know, noble Native American or the perfect good immigrant the hardworking, head down immigrant is really, it really takes away from the image of God in them. We're just reducing them to these types rather than allowing them to be complex human beings the way that God created them. They're allowed, immigrants, we're allowed to have bad days. We're allowed to be flawed. We're allowed to be sex workers like Rahab. You know, I think the story of Rahab is brilliant because she's held up as this pillar of faith, but Really, what you see in the story is survival, like yes. to survive, you know, yes. and, and it doesn't seem to matter to God. She threw her lot in with, you know, uh, with the Israelites uh, out of a desire to save her household, probably. And, you know, and she did. And so so I think these are other stories that I'm learning from in terms of and I think the land story is a really, really important one. And this is why, really, I think borders are extremely harmful People think that borders protect them. You know, the walls and rubber bullets and border patrols, they think all of this makes them safer. 
And it's counterintuitive, and I know it's hard to accept, but it doesn't. Actually, borders and the enforcement of a militarized border, which is what we have now, it actually creates all of the things that have become associated with it that are negative. Criminality, trafficking of people, trafficking of drugs, trafficking of goods, all of the things that you hear about are created by the border. It's not a, re a result of bad enforcement. It's not a result of, you know, people coming of humanitarian needs. Nope. It's the very fact that we are restricting people from doing something that is natural to human beings, which is to move when they have needs or when they need safety. And that is what is normal to do. So I don't know if that answers some of your yes. questions around that, but I'm learning a lot from indigenous people yes. around. Yeah, I am too. One of the major ways, one of the ways I think I have learned what you're talking about is just that like when the land is treated as a commodity, it's easy to treat people as commodities. When the land is no longer sibling that we are nourished by and nourish in return, that it becomes very, the line between that and dehumanizing and exploiting and turning people into commodities is really, really short. And I heard you even say this before that we want laborers, but not human beings. And I think that that's how that happens is that when the land becomes something that works for us, then people become objects that work for us and our greater good. And it robs this image of God that is inherent in people that is being lived out as people migrate and as people move. And I think you're right. It's this idea that like, everyone has a right to be here. Like we have we have the right to be here. People have the right to be here. And I think about the story in at the end of Revelation, where it's talking about this like new, this new heaven and new earth, and the images of this city where the gates never close, where there's this there's this fluidity of people coming in and out as they please, as they have need, that there's this community that is resourced, that God is at the center of, and that people come and go from every nation and tribe and tongue of people. And to me, if that's not an image for what we need to think about when we consider borders. I'm like, God has an image where borders don't exist because they don't create and or they don't close because like you're saying, they create danger and chaos and the very things that we say that we don't want. And I think that's really hard for us to imagine because we actually don't have outside of indigenized worldviews right now, a lot of pictures of what it means to not have borders, that they seem natural and inherent because it's the only thing we know. And so I think as we have conversations about immigration and migration in various capacities, we actually have to imagine differently. And I think your invitation to see the scriptures through the eyes of an immigrant is one of those really beautiful tools that we can use to imagine a different world, to imagine a different way of being. And it's why I turn to kind of that revelation image often because I'm like, mm -hmm. I can't actually imagine what that kind of world could look like. But what I see is some assumption that it's good and that people get to coexist together in a way where needs are met and where God is at the center of it. Because right now there is no, like people love to be like Jesus at the center of it all. Oh my gosh, yay, Jesus is at the center. When the people that Jesus loves aren't even in the room when people that Jesus loves aren't in the country or where people that Jesus loves have to go into hiding as to not be deported or victimized by ice or things like that. Like, I don't think we can imagine a world without ice. Like, I don't think we can imagine a world where we don't need to have a militarized border. And so I think that indigenous folks have been giving me a lot of language 
and a lot of like imagination for what things can look like. And I think that's why the idea of decolonizing is so important because the idea of lacking borders or like individual property ownership or things like that are pre-colonial values that we have to turn back to. And so I, yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think I've been shaped in a similar way. So I imagine that there's people listening who are like, okay, yeah, this is all great. And it's a really beautiful picture, but I have like a racist uncle who like waves his American flag and says that we need to keep the immigrants out so they don't take our jobs or like spew some kind of other factually untrue myth. What is there to, you've talked a little bit about this in, in some ways, like that, that we all actually win when we follow this very ancient way of being. I don't even know how to ask this question. Um, I think I'm just wondering, how do we invite people into this better way, into seeing what the benefits are of actually doing this in the way that we say that we would want to as people who follow Jesus? Yeah, I think that, you know, some of the more successful conversations I've had have been around um, shared humanity. So I think often people will I don't like to lead conversations with economics. The fact is immigration is good for countries and their economies. That's mm -hmm. a fact. Demographers, yeah. scholars, all kinds of people will tell you that. Even people you would not expect because it's just a, a fact. And we have now immigrants are 13% of the U.S. and they are 16% of the workforce. Um, the fact is we do have an aging, retiring population and the only way that we are replacing our population is through migration, both legal and illegal. So, so that's a reality. Um, so I think one of the things that I have told people is there's a belief that the immigrants today are different than the ones that came through Ellis Island, right? The only difference is the immigrants today are not white, mm -hmm. are not European. So this is what I tell people, immigrants today are no different than the ones that came generations ago. We have the same need and we have the same humanity. What has changed is legal processes for getting in. Mm -hmm. That has become so difficult that it leads to unlawful migration. But here's the thing. So we have so many jobs in this country. In fact, more jobs than people to fill them. Um, so there seems to be two signs at the border. One says, keep out. And the other one says, help wanting. Yes. Um, and I think there's a real duplicitous response that our, our government has had toward immigration. So let me give you an example of this. And I think this is something really good to bring up to people when they talk about this. So we have DHS and ICE, right? DHS is, uh, ICE is part of DHS that tells us that uh, unauthorized immigrants should not be here and they're trying to deport them, right? And put them in detention. On the other hand, we have the Social Security Administration and the IRS who says, we know that there are people here that are undocumented and they're working. We want our money anyway. And they are receiving payments from, um, from undocumented immigrants. And so 
Our government does not even have a unified response. You can't have it both ways. You can't say, oh, I want the benefits, but but also get out. Yes. <laughs> you can't, uh, you can't, we're talking about people. As I think as Christians, I think one of the things that I bring up with people is we have these labor needs. We have these complementary interests. People have a need to keep their families together. People have a need to find work and safety, right? And we have a labor market that has a lot of jobs and we don't have enough citizens to fill them. And in some cases we have jobs that our, our citizens are unwilling to do. Yes. But you know, most of the food in the United States comes from California Central Valley, right? 70 to 75% of the workers, the agricultural workers are undocumented. So, you know, when you say your prayers before you eat, if you do that, people who are listening, yeah, thank all those migrants, pray for all of them who are working in pesticides, who are worked through fires and smoke um, in terrible conditions without benefits and without a lot of the protections that they deserve as human beings who are workers in the United States. So I think that's some of the points that I bring into people. I don't like to lead with economics, but I think it's important to also bring that into the conversation. We need to talk about shared humanity because that has been the problem is we have stripped people of the fact that they're made in the image of God. They are human beings. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be revolutionary to say immigrants are human beings. <laughs> They're human beings, and as such, we have to respect their humanity. But also, there is so much research that shows that immigration is actually good for our country and our economy. And I think this is where some more racism intersects, because people were quite content to welcome Northern European immigrants. Mm -hmm. And they still, by the way, even today in our immigration system, people who are white experience so many benefits. I met a woman recently who was... Um, Irish, like from Ireland, who had just come out of prison. What's supposed to happen when you're an immigrant who came out of prison is you're supposed to get deported. Mm -hmm. Um, She's white. And so she was not deported. No one's even looking for her is what we found out about her case. Now, believe me, if she were a brown or black person, because Black immigrants, brown immigrants are, uh, black immigrants especially are deported, I think, 66% higher rate um, than non-black immigrants. So I think we have to acknowledge that there's a lot of, you know, your racist uncle, what bothers him is that these people are brown and black, you know, and that that's the majority of the immigrants that are coming today, you know, South Asian, Asian, Latin American, African, Caribbean. So... There's no one answer, I think. You know, they say that you have to have sustained conversations to help people change their minds. But I think you should, at the very least, you have a racist uncle. I have one uh, who is an immigrant, which is even sadder. But, you know, when we talk, I tell him, look, we can disagree on policy and that's okay. We can debate that. I said, but we're not going to debate the humanity of people. You're not allowed to disparage them in my presence. Um, and, and that's a line that he can't cross. I said, now, if you want to discuss how we can reform our immigration policy, sure, let's have a conversation around that. But I think that's a line that all of us need to draw, no matter who the racist is in our families, even if we don't think it'll change their mind, it doesn't matter. There are people in the room who are listening 
and who need to know that this is not okay, that this is not a line that you'll allow to be crossed in your presence. Yes. Well, I think that's an important concept across all identity conversations that we are not arguing. We, we do not have to argue our own humanity or the humanity of any person and that that should exist, that people should have the right to exist and to be in the world, to survive and to have what they need to survive. And so I think that that's a helpful boundary that maybe a lot of us have not been able to draw with our families. And I think that it, it pulls to this idea that in a racist society, white people get to be the most human, mm-hmm. that white people are offered compassion, offered kindness, offered theological outs for not doing the way of God in these things. And that when we think about xenophobia, racism, immigration, migration, what we're talking about really is an issue of sin for Christians. It's an Mm -hmm. issue of devaluing, of choosing who our neighbor is instead of loving all of our neighbors or or to ask the question, right, that the lawyer asks Jesus, which is, who is my neighbor? and trying to build walls to keep our neighbors out so that we do not have to love them instead of recognizing that the contracts that we are in don't reflect the way of God. They harm people and as they harm others, they harm us because in every kind of oppression, it is true that when we dehumanize others, we dehumanize ourselves. And so I think there is actually a fight in this conversation for our own collective humanity that is given back to us as we, or that is regained or relearned as we broaden who gets to be here, wherever here is for folks who are listening. And so I think a couple of things, um, maybe I'll say it this way. As we as we close, are there, are there some things that you would advise people to do or things that can help folks as they're in the street? And so I'm wondering if you have some things that would be helpful for folks as they're learning. I know you've already mentioned reading the scriptures through immigrant eyes. Um, One thing that I would say, in addition to what you were saying about land acknowledgements being kind of flat, is to actually learn about the immigration history of your city or your town or where you live and to notice the impacts of that. Because I know that I work in Tacoma, Washington, a good portion of the time in the summers. And the anti-Asian violence there against Vietnamese folks, against Japanese folks, and against Chinese folks, made it so that the air, like a particular area of the city where they used to live still has less than 1% like Chinese folks in it after the exclusion. That's not a neutral thing for a city. And so I think learning the histories of the cities that we're in, the places that we occupy matters in how we exist there. So I'm wondering if you have any advice for folks who are trying to unlearn the anti, or really the, for people who are trying to unlearn the xenophobia that they've been taught that impacts how we see immigration. Yeah, and I think one of the things you can do is because really until you know things for a fact, uh, every single kind of wind, right, of doctrine is going to blow you here and there. And I think it's important to to really, I am always invite people to examine their own view of immigration. And I mean, by themselves in God's presence and really evaluate, are my views primarily informed by my faith? Or are they informed by my new peer group? Maybe I'm friends with a lot of progressive Christians and this is what they're saying. So I'm saying this too. Are they informed by my family? Are they informed by politicians and their rhetoric or Fox News or whatever to really sit down and examine that? Because really until if you are a Christian and you say that these views are informed by your faith, well, where, where is that? 
uh, where are you seeing that in the scriptures? Where are you seeing God's value and heart uh, for people who are immigrants? Um, it's important that you know that for yourself. Um, and I think it is important to read a passage of scripture that you know, read Genesis again and pay attention to all the movement of people. Just look for that. The way that you would have read in a literature class in high school, read looking for movement of people. Read looking for things like xenophobia or philoxenia. You have this in the book of Genesis where at first, you know, Joseph and his family are loved and welcomed, right? And then Joseph's generation dies. New leader comes to power, right? And things change for that entire group of people. So it's important for us to read with these lenses. It's hard. It, it's going to feel like, oh, it's wrong because it's not the dominant narrative. But remember that, the, that it's there in the scriptures. And the people who wrote the Bible, right, there was a dominant patriarchal perspective, right? And there's one people group that's highlighted in it. So you have to look at the edges and the shadows, right? Beyond the spotlight to see the stories of people who are marginalized. Mm -hmm. um, when you do that, what you will begin to see is that maybe the people, as Will Gaffney says, that you have made the heroes of the stories are not the heroes. <laughs> Maybe you are meant to focus on Hagar as the hero of the story. Maybe Hagar is the mother of the faith, the woman who saw God not once, but twice, uh, and the woman who was promised this um, future for herself and her child as well, and who returned to her homeland. So I think those are two things that people can do um, if they are people of faith, certainly. Um, and, you know, there is a lot to know and learn and read if you want yeah. to do that as well. So it is important to get educated so that our next group of friends um, don't influence us in another direction. Yeah. Well, with that, uh, you uh, I'm going to just cue you up here because you did write a book on all of this. But I would love if you could. Is there anything that you want to plug? Anything that people should know about that you're doing or any places that people sure. can find you? Is <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am on Twitter uh, at, and yeah, Instagram with the same uh, handle at underscore Karen J. Gonzalez. And I did write a book about reading the Bible uh, through immigrant eyes. It's called The God Who Sees, which I took from the story of Agar. And I'm writing another book, actually, that yes. um, is, uh, is also about immigration and sort of elevating the discourse of the church and addressing some of these things like the good immigrant myth and the words that we use and the way we think about land and the way we read our Bibles. So yeah, I would love to connect with you. Perfect. We'll definitely find her out in these internet streets and we'll try to have you back on when the next book comes out so you can tell us a little bit more about what you're talking about and doing. Thank you for joining for another episode of Reclaiming My Theology. I love getting to do this work with you all. If you like what you hear, as I say every week, please subscribe, rate, and review. If you want to financially support the podcast and help it to happen, you can join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash brandynico. We're starting to do workshops there. We have a Discord, and I'll be sending out a little gift to all of our patrons soon. So if you're a patron and you're listening to this right now, update your address because it's going to be really fun. And honestly, I think fun helps us to do a little bit better together. <laughs>